Uh, Would you open your Bibles now to the book of Titus, the third chapter? Believe it or not, we're still in the book of Titus. I have become a guest speaker here. But we have um, gotten all the way to chapter 3, and we may finish it before the Lord returns. Who knows? Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father, we now pray that you would open up our hearts to the understanding of what Paul was writing when he wrote this letter to Titus. Father, I pray that as we make application to our own lives, we would see our responsibility as we walk in this kingdom of the world, that we would be responsible citizens as Christians, knowing, Lord, that we have another kingdom that we will one day walk in forever. I pray, Lord, that we would be responsible in both, storing up treasures in heaven, but being responsible as salt and light even now. Give us your grace, Lord, and we surrender ourselves to your Holy Spirit that we might become everything that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. In general, I love life. I love doing lots of different things. I don't do them all well, but I like dabbling in many things. This last week I was in Colorado and um, doing a bunch of activities. I finished a couple books and I spoke to some publishers about publishing them. And then we went up to Breckenridge where on Saturday we, if you can believe it, snowboarded in July. And I was up there thinking, man, this is, it's the greatest. The middle of July, snowboarding. Getting up, it's 37 degrees up there. You know, it's 103 here, it's 37 up there. And I was thinking of all the activities that that I enjoy doing, but then I thought, man, wait till heaven. It's great to be a citizen of this world, uh, even though it's tough because it is opposed generally, philosophically to the ways of God. I just love life, but I I can't help but wonder what heaven's going to be like, that one day we're going to be able to cruise down the streets of heaven eternally, without end. You think, man, what am I going to do for that long? Hey, don't worry, I think you'll find enough to be occupied with. I mean, think you could spend 4,000 years with Abraham if you wanted to and just pick his brain. Or Moses, the greatest will be being in the presence of Jesus Christ. We live in an eternal kingdom. We're citizens in heaven, the Bible tells us. Every now and then somebody will ask, will we recognize each other in heaven? And my answer is what Spurgeon said, do you think we'll be more stupid in heaven than we are here? (laughs) 
I mean, if you recognize somebody here, I'm sure you're going to recognize them in heaven. But at the same time, though we look forward to that eternal kingdom, we are called to be very responsible citizens in the world. Somebody once said that you can be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. I contend that you can become so worldly minded that you're good for neither the next kingdom nor this kingdom. I think we need to be heavenly minded so that we can become earthly good. The question is how do we become responsible citizens in this earth? Well, we are called to be both salt and light. Salt, that is, we create a thirst. And then light, we point people out of the darkness into His light. That means we get involved in this kingdom, this world, and we become responsible citizens. I found a newspaper article about a guy who was frustrated with what he saw around him. He was a bus driver. In a local newspaper it said, A bus driver became annoyed with his job because he had to wait seven minutes after every run near an open field which litter bugs had made into an unofficial dump. He often thought that somebody should do something about this unsightly mess. One day, he himself decided to get out and pick up some of the tin cans and other debris which were lying all around. This improved things so much that he soon was eager to complete his route and spend all of his free moments in cleaning up the area. When spring came, he was so enthusiastic about this project that he decided to sow some flower seeds. By the end of the summer, many were riding to the end of the line just to see what this motorman had accomplished by doing and what he and others had only talked about before. What he saw needed to get done, he got involved and he did it. What we have in chapter 3 is our conduct and our character When it comes to being a witness in this world, and uh, we have given just a couple verses last time, but this is how I've divided it up. We have an obligation. And the first couple verses of chapter 3 speak about our present obligation as people who live in this society. Our present obligation, however, is based upon two things. It is based upon our previous condition and our past salvation. We have a present obligation based upon our previous condition and our past salvation. The key to society, I believe with all my heart, is the Christian. The Christian is what keeps society from judgment. Now one day God's going to judge the world. He's promised that already. No ifs, no ands, no buts. There is going to be a judgment day. But the Christian, I believe, is the salt. That is, it's preserving this world from being so rotten that it can't exist. If you want to see what rotten is, wait till the church gets lifted off of the earth at the rapture and the meat is left to itself to rot and corrupt. And then judgment will become inevitable. And so the key to society is the Christian, which is quite an honor, is it not? To know that we are God's representatives as both salt and light. Charles Finney once wrote, The fact is, Christians are more to blame for not being revived than sinners are for not being converted. So rather than focusing on, they're so wicked, 
We should look at ourselves as being salt and light. And what is our position in the world in which we live? First of all, uh, by way of recap, we'll go over the first couple of verses shortly, our present obligation. Um, remind them, Paul says to Titus, them being the church, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. First of all, he covers our actions and attitudes toward governing authorities. And we went through that pretty much in depth last time. Uh, but to recap it, you're to be subject to them. It means you're to submit. The word you may remember was hupatasso, which was a military term to get troops in rank or in order under the command of a commanding officer. The commanding officer gives out the orders and the troops march. We are to submit ourselves or to rank in order to the governing authorities of the land. Now remember, when Paul wrote these words, there were no Republicans and Democrats. There was no free speech. There was no democratic society. You could not pick it. It was a despotic and oppressive culture. There was Caesar in Rome and what he said went. And there was Caesar Nero who hated Christians and killed many of them. They did not have the free speech and the ability to be involved in society that we have. And yet Paul says to them, you, yes, even you, who are slaves, many of you, living under a very oppressive culture, are to be submissive or subjective, subjected to the governing authorities. So that means whether your authority happens to be Caesar or Herod or Pilate or Churchill or Clinton, be subject to governing authorities. Now we remember, there are exceptions to every rule. There were times when God calls the Christian to sound the alarm and to disobey governing authorities. That is, when, whenever they tell us something or impose a standard upon us that flatly disregards or controverts what God says, then we say, no way, Jose. We could say it probably in nicer terms, but we obey God rather than men. And the case that we referred to last time was in the book of Acts when a memo went out throughout all of Jerusalem that if you were a Christian, you could not talk about it. You could not speak anymore in the name of the Lord Jesus. To which Peter and John flatly disobeyed. He and the rest of the disciples prayed for boldness to go out and preach the gospel and they did it again. And the enemies of the church said, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine." And we commanded you not to speak in this name anymore. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. The other notable example is that in the life of Daniel. Daniel being Jewish, eating only kosher food, was commanded to eat the king's delicacies. And so he politely went to the person who was in charge of him and he said, let us be tested. I'm not going to eat that food. I am Jewish. I eat kosher food. Let me eat vegetables and drink water. I'll go on a fast. Then there was the time when there was a ban on prayer. This was not a ban on school prayer. This was a ban on prayer in general. You cannot pray to any god, said the Medes and the Persians, for a month, for 30 days. And whoever does will be cast into the lion's den. Daniel found out, opened his windows three times a day to Jerusalem, and bowed in front of everyone, which he had always done since he was a kid. He disobeyed men so that he might obey God. So we are to be subject to rulers, but there are times where we disobey. 
So first of all, our present obligation is to be submissive to governing authorities. And then in the next verse, our actions and attitude toward all non-Christians are given. It says to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Speaking evil of people. It's an interesting word. It's the word blasphemeo, blaspheme. Don't blaspheme any person. Don't speak evil of any person at all. Speaking of the uh, unsaved world in general. Now there are times that we have to confront and call into account and even rebuke those that are unbelievers. The Bible speaks to that. But we're not to slander the people we're trying to rescue. We want to bring them in, not push them back. And so the idea is speaking evil or not blaspheming or slandering unbelievers. There's an example of that. Let's look at it. Turn back to Acts, the 23rd chapter. It's an example in the life of Paul the Apostle himself who gets caught in an unusual situation. Acts 23. Paul is standing before the council. And then Paul, looking earnestly, this is chapter 23 of Acts, verse 1. Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, he really meant that. He wasn't just making it up or schmoozing them so that they would think, Wow, this guy's really spiritual. He lived with a pure conscience. Yet there were many Jews who thought that that was impossible to do, that nobody could do that. And it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Aren't you glad to find out that Paul is as human as you or I? You read that and go, Yeah, Amen. I can relate to this guy. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? What the high priest commanded to be done was illegal according to the Mosaic law. And Paul called him into account. But notice. And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So he backed off, not knowing that this was the high priest. He kind of gave a verbal rebuttal, a chop, if you will. He said, this is the high priest, and the scripture came to mind, Paul quoted it, and he backed off. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, this command is not only to rulers, not only to government officials, but as we just read, it's to All men, we are to speak evil of no one. Let me give you a few different scripture references. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul said, But now you yourselves are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. That was your past life. You are to cut it off. Then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, the apostle says, Let all bitterness, wrath, Anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Peter shared much the same thing in Second or First Peter chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, 
and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. You lay it aside. That is the general attitude that you have toward the unbeliever. Admit it. The one area you and I get into a lot of trouble in is where? Right here. Our tongue. James was right, wasn't he? The tongue no man can tame. Have you ever tried to do it? Have you ever been successful? The, tame no, the tongue no man can tame. See, I just proved it. <laughs> it is difficult, and that is where we get into so much trouble. How many times have you said something only to wish you could reach out, grab those words, and stuff them back into your gullet? But it's too late. They're out. It's on record. It's over. We get into so much trouble. Like the woman who died and on her tombstone it said, Here lies Arabella Young, who at the age of 82 finally held her tongue. She could never do it in life. It was only upon her death that she was able to do it. No man can tame the tongue. I even heard, and you may have heard this too, of the three pastors that went out fishing. Now this is not the priest and the rabbi and the minister. This was three ministers who were out fishing. They were at a conference. They decided to take some leisure time and get accountable to each other and get close to each other and confess each other's faults one to another, bear one another's burdens. And it was starting to be so healthy as the first pastor shared his secret sins with the other two, the area that he was struggling with. And as he bore his heart, the others listened compassionately, at least it seemed. And then the second pastor bore his heart and shared his weakness because he was prompted by the first who so freely shared. And so he shared what was burdening him and where his area of weakness was. Finally, the two who had confessed said to the third, Well, it's your turn now. What are you struggling with? What is your area of weakness? And he was reluctant. He says, I don't think you guys want to know mine, but if you insist... I just love to gossip. And I can't wait till we all get back so I can tell everyone about you guys. Rotten character. The tongue no man can tame. Yet, when God gives a command, you've got to believe that God with the command gives the ability to pull it off. And so this is not something that is unreachable, unattainable. We will all slip with the tongue. But implicit within James' writings that no man can tame the tongue is that God can do it. So speak evil of no one. And then he gives these actually four characteristics of your attitude toward the unbeliever. You're to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. You do that, you'll have a good reputation, as Paul wrote to Timothy, to those who are outside. Verse 2, as I see it, describes salt. Describes what a Christian is when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Look at it again. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. I think that if we live this way generally, we will make Christianity attractive to unbelievers with these qualities. Now, Jesus did say, you are the salt of the earth. What is salt meant to do? Well, number one, salt gives flavor, doesn't it? We're fond of salting our food. Some of us struggle when the doctor says, no sodium in your diet, pal. 
It's going to hurt you in the long run. Oh, uh, I just want a little salt on those potatoes. They're bland, they're flat, they're tasteless without it. Or, or what if somebody told New Mexico all of a sudden that chili was bad? Oh, we'd go into shock. This place loves its chili. It's got the best chili on earth. It knows what spicy food is, and we love to add spice to our food. And I have to admit, when I first came here, I was a gringo mouth. I was used to Tex-Mex food. Very bland. What we called Mexican authentic food would be Taco Bell, where I come from. And I came here and they started serving me that hot chili. And I thought, ooh, I can't handle that. Then all of a sudden, you know, slowly but surely, I got a taste for it. And then, you know, it becomes addictive. I remember working here in uh, the hospital with a character who loved these little things. He introduced them to me. Hueritos. Those little yellow hots. And he'd say, and he, gave, he gave me a whole lesson on how to eat. He goes, now, if you want to eat, you take a bite of whatever you're eating, your lunch, your sandwich, your hamburger. Then you take a little bite of the huerito. And it, all it does, he said, is enhance the flavor. It amplifies the flavor. Now, I was game for anything. So I bit into one of those babies and I wept. I wept. I mean, I just, his glasses were fogging up while he was eating. And I said, this is pleasurable. You like this? This is masochistic. But you know what? I started liking it. And I've liked it ever since. And now, if I don't have a little chili or a little spice, it seems bland. Life is the same way. Without purpose... Without meaning, without God's plan, life is pretty insipid and flat and tasteless. That is why there is such an emphasis today on pleasure mania. That's why songs like Sheryl Crow's song, All I want to do is have some fun, has become the motto of America. By the way, Sheryl Crow used to be a backup singer for Paul Clark for two years. She sung Christian music. So you need to pray that God will rescue her heart back to himself. All I want to do is have some fun. I want spice in my life. Life is flat without something else. So Christians are to be salt and light, and by these characteristics, we become salt. We add the spice to an otherwise dull life. It's unfortunate that the average unbeliever looks at Christianity as the opposite. They don't see it as the spice of life. They go, oh, to be a Christian? Oh, how dull. How boring. How flat. How insipid. That's how I thought. I know this from experience. I looked at Christians and I said, whatever happens to me, I don't want to be one of them. Like Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote one time, he said, I wanted to enter the ministry except all the clergymen I knew looked and acted like morticians. Mark Twain once wrote in his diary as if it was incredulous. He said, I went to church today and I'm not depressed. That's how the average deceived unbeliever looks at Christianity. So it's incumbent upon Christians to be salt, to speak evil of no one, to be gentle, to be peaceable, showing humility to all men. Then, of course, salt creates a thirst, doesn't it? You eat something that is salty, and what do you say afterwards? I'd like some fluid. I need some water. 
And so by our lives, we should be also creating a thirst. So evaluate your attitude. Evaluate your attitude toward the unbelieving government and the unbelieving world in general. Ask yourself this. Are you characterized by submissiveness? Does that characterize you? Are you subject to authorities? When you're pulled over by police, how do you act? Indignant? Are you characterized by submissiveness? Are you characterized by obedience? Paying your taxes? Honoring officials? Do you pray for the government? The attitude toward the unbelieving world. Now, that is what we are supposed to do. That's the present obligation. But it seems as though Paul, when writing this, anticipated that there's going to be some people who would say, Why? Who would defy the command? Who would want a reason for it? Why should I do it? And so he says, this is your present obligation, and here's the why. You're to do it based upon your previous condition and your past salvation. The previous condition is in verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, and hating one another. Now this is a description of your past. This is not your present, I hope. This is who you used to be. This is like your self-portrait. This is what you were before Christ, but you are so different in the light that verse 3 speaks about what you used to be as opposed to what you are now because of salvation. Now you might want to look at that list because that was your portrait before you came to Christ. Um, Paul wrote in Ephesians... He made you alive, you who were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the age. You were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's what you were, but now he's made you alive. That's not what you are anymore. That's sort of the idea here. Now, uh, you could take word for word in verse 3. I'm not going to do that. I've summed up verse 3 your previous condition, in three words. You were deceived, you were disabled, you were disobedient. One speaks of the condition of your heart or your mind, one speaks of the condition of your will, and one speaks of the condition of your actions. First of all, you were deceived. It says foolish, disobedient, and deceived. That's the condition of your mind or your heart. Secondly, you were serving various lusts, that is, you were disabled, you were enslaved to these things, that's the condition of your will. And then finally, you were disobedient. And it says, hating one another, toward the end of that verse. That's the condition of your action. Um, let's look at, first of all, the deceived part. It says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and deceived. In other words... Your past life was characterized by you were ignorant of spiritual things. It says, our foolish hearts were darkened in the book of Romans. Our foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish means without understanding, ignorant, or we might translate it, you didn't have a clue about God. Oh, you, you may have thought you had. You were raised religiously. But before you came into a born-again relationship, you didn't have a clue about spiritual things. You were a spiritual ignoramus. Some translate it agnostic. 
The word means the same thing. You were without knowledge. Your foolish heart was darkened. Ephesians 4.18 Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts. Now that's what you used to be like, and that's what unbelievers are like. That's why you ought to be kind to them, because God was kind to you when you were deceived. You get it? You can't expect any more of an unbeliever than this. You can't expect an unbeliever to act like a Christian or to come up with a Christian value system. That's why Jesus, when he hung on the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they what? They don't know what they're doing. They're in unbelief because they're in ignorance about their condition. Then secondly, you were disabled. Notice it says, serving various lusts and pleasures. That's a condition of your will. Your will was enslaved by the pleasures or the lusts of this world. It means to be in bondage to something as a slave would be in bondage to a master. In northern Africa, they have an interesting way of catching monkeys. They'll take a gourd, a dried gourd, and they'll attach it to a tree. They'll wire it or tie it with vines to the branch of a tree, cut a hole in it, and put nuts and grains in it. And they'll put them all over the trees. The monkey, sensing the nuts or hearing them or smelling them, will go up, put his hand in, which he can fit through the hole, grab a handful of the grain, make a fist. And now the clenched fist is too big to bring through that hole. The monkey doesn't have enough sense to let go of the grain, and he is trapped. And that's how they trap the monkeys. He's enslaved by his desire to get the grain. I'm not going to let go. He's caught. That's what you were like before you came to Christ. You were deceived, you were disabled as a slave to these various pleasures. And thirdly, you were disobedient. It uses that word in the beginning of verse 3, and then toward the end it says, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So, before you were a Christian, your previous condition, you were deceived, you didn't have a clue about spiritual things, you were a slave to your various lusts, and... You were disobedient by hating other people. Okay, now he's going to make a point here. We ought to be submissive to leaders and not speak evil of unbelievers because hating people is the life of an unbeliever, not a Christian. And notice the description. Malice. You know what that means? Malice means the satisfaction of seeing other people suffer. You get your kicks by seeing somebody else suffer. That's what the term malice means. Now, Paul was like that at once in his life. Remember, he said, I hated Christians so much. I chased them even unto foreign cities. I persecuted them, brought them to prison, and even to death. He didn't want to see them prosper. And he enjoyed seeing them suffer. He consented, the Bible says, unto the stoning of Stephen. Maybe you're the kind of a person that has or had a powerful position. Maybe corporately. Maybe you wield some power at the office, on the job. You have the power to step on another person to make it higher up the corporate ladder. But that's the past. That's what you were like, not are like. The next word is envy, under that heading disobedient. Envy describes a person who is unhappy when other people are happy. Or, let me rephrase that, a person who gets unhappy... Because other people get happy. Can you imagine? 
Somebody else is blessed, and that makes you mad. Kids are like that, aren't they? They're so happy when they get that new toy until they compare toys with their friends. And their friend has the new model of Power Rangers. It's bigger. It's the red one. They were sold out at the store you bought him the blue one at. He's got the red one. I don't have the red one. But it doesn't stop with children, does it? So many adults have the same problem. In fact, I found Christians that have the same problem, unfortunately. The Bible says, weep with them that weep, rejoice with those that rejoice. It's easy to do the first part. Somebody has a catastrophe happen, you come alongside and weep or comfort with them. But when you need to be blessed and somebody gets blessed more than you, let's say you're running around in a beat up old Volkswagen, it barely runs, you've got it, you know, scotch taped together, a few hangers holding it up. Man, you need a car. And some young upstart comes up and says, Look, God gave me a brand new car. What's your attitude? Oh, praise God. (laughs) Hallelujah to you. But you didn't get blessed like he got blessed. And envy can set in. And we have to watch it because Proverbs tells us, Envy is the rottenness of the bones. It rots you from the inside. Dwight L. Moody used to tell a a kind of a famous analogy or illustration. He talked about an eagle who was jealous or envious over another eagle. And so the eagle was soaring, looking at that other eagle who was soaring higher, and he was envious. And one day, the eagle who was envious saw a hunter down below with a bow and arrow. And he talked the hunter into shooting. Hey, shoot down that eagle for me, would you? He said, well, if you give me one of my feathers one of your feathers for my arrow so it can guide, I'll do it. So the eagle plucked out one of his feathers, gave it to the bowsman. He pulled back his bow, but he missed. The first eagle got so envious, he goes, do it again, here. Plucked out another one, and another, and another, and another, and another, because the guy was such a poor aim. And you can see what happened. Because he had no feathers, he was in such a weakened condition he couldn't fly that the hunter took advantage of this loudmouth eagle and killed him. And Moody always used to say that when you are envious toward another person, your actions do more harm to you than to anybody else. We have a present obligation to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, to love the unbeliever, because our previous condition is that we were deceived in the heart in the mind We were disabled, we were enslaved to sin. And we were disobedient by being hateful to others. Now, as most of you know, John, in his writings, goes into pretty much great detail saying that the test of a Christian versus a non-Christian is the issue of love and hate, right? He said this in 1 John chapter 2, But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He said if we say we walk in the light, but we hate our brother, we're a liar. We walk in darkness. Love versus hate. I heard of a little boy, talked to his sister. There was a woman that lived next door that... This little boy couldn't stand. 
One day he said to his sister, I just hate her. And his sister says, you can't hate her. The Bible says you have to love everybody. He said, yeah, but she was born before the Bible was written. I don't have to love her. We feel like that sometimes. But the malice, the envy, the hating of one another was your previous condition, not your present condition. And loving the unbeliever, think about that for a minute. Loving the unbeliever is a characteristic of God, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus said there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's the heart of God. Now some of the rabbis during Jesus' time had a saying. The saying was this, There is joy in heaven when one sinner is obliterated from the earth. But that wasn't true. There's joy in heaven when one sinner repents because God loves the world. He doesn't want to incinerate them. He doesn't want to obliterate them. He wants to save them. Now, I don't want to belabor the issue too much, but folks, if there's one place where love ought to be demonstrated, where is it? It's here in the church. You can't expect love to flourish at Kmart or a fast food restaurant. No offense if you work there or you own one. But if there's one place above all places that love ought to be preeminent, it's within the body of Christ, that we love one another, that the world can see that love, that this is what we were, but this is now what we are, and it's so visibly demonstrated among us. Tertullian said that there's a spy that went into the early church during the Roman Empire, and he wrote about how they worship the God who is unseen And they love that God. And he said, my, how they love one another. That was the testimony of a spy. And then there was the reaction of a Greek writer named Lucian. Upon observing the fellowship of Christians wrote these words, It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of this religion help each other in their needs. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they are brethren. Now, there are some places, praise the Lord, where it's seen. And there are places where the love of the church toward the world is seen. When missionaries go out, when relief organizations feed people who are not just Christians, but are Muslims and Hindus, and in the name of Jesus Christ, give them food and give them medicine, and then share the love of Jesus Christ with them. But then there are places where it's not seen. There are places where you walk inside a Christian organization or a church, and rather than being a sheep pen, it's like a baby pen where bottles are being tossed back and forth, and arguments prevail. Anything but the love of Jesus Christ. So take a little test. Take a little test here. See if this reflects you. Number one, I like to see people get ahead and prosper in the Lord. True or false? You don't have to answer it out loud. Number two, I praise and encourage others more than I criticize them and put them down. Number three, I can praise others or hear them being praised without wanting to put them down or put in some objective criticism just to balance things out. Then I can stop with that and say, yeah, but if I can just let it rest at that. That's sort of your love test. Then finally, let's look at verses 4 through 7, and we'll finish up. 
our present obligation to obey authorities, to love the unbelieving world like God did, is based upon our previous condition and our past salvation. Notice verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing and the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'll rephrase that. Paul is saying, look how God treated you. Remember back when you were saved? Before you were enlightened, you were deceived, you were disobedient, and God loved you then. When you were Crepus Maximus, God saved you, not because you deserved it. You didn't work for it. It wasn't by your works. Thus, if God treated you kindly when you hated Him, then you shouldn't treat unbelievers any less kindly because you should be sympathetic toward them, remembering from whence you came. God acted kindly to you. You should act kind to unbelievers. And you know what? It works. Listen to this letter from a former lesbian written to the moderator of a Christian radio program or talk show. She said, Thank you for your recent radio program entitled Hope for the Homosexual, which aired in April. I am a former lesbian and many years in the gay community, but afterwards I joined a Christian woman's Bible study where I met happy, healthy, normal Christian women who treated me with respect. I never had my emotional needs met before. My mother had rejected me, and the lesbian community was always looking for lovers. Being around real Christians was the most healing experience I've had. Your attitude toward unbelievers is based on who you used to be and what God did for you when you were like that. Now, there's a great example again of this. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 18. We only have a few minutes left, and this is where we'll close. Matthew chapter 18. I think already a lot of you know exactly which story we're going to get to. It's the story of Peter who came and asked Jesus a question. Verse 21, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, Peter was being generous, but he needed a perspective adjustment. You see, Peter's view of love and forgiveness was on this plane, the horizon, the horizontal plane between me and another person. Okay, somebody slams me, Lord. Somebody stiffs me. How often do you require that I forgive him? Seven times. His problem is that he didn't realize that forgiveness is both vertical and horizontal. And your horizontal forgiveness of others depends so much and is linked to the vertical forgiveness of God to you. That's where he went wrong. And so Jesus said, I do not say up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, here's his answer. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's about 10 million bucks. Obviously, he had stolen from this king and he had kept it. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Now, stop right there. 
Does that strike you as a little bit laughable? I owe you 10 million bucks. Just be a little patient. I'll pay you all. It is estimated that you would have to work 20 years in that culture at that average wage that he got. 20 years to get one talent. Which means if he were to engage in labor to pay back his boss, he would have to work 200,000 years. Be patient with me. I'll pay you back. You either have to believe in reincarnation or believe that you're going to take awfully good care of your body. Now, in other words, it's impossible. It's a lost cause. The only thing that would help in this situation is the total compassion of the one who's been wronged, the king himself. The master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, less than twenty dollars, laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison that he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then the master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. The crime required infinite forgiveness, and the king was willing to do it and assume the loss himself. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And the master was angry, delivered him to the tortures until he would pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father will do to each of you, or to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What's the lesson? Vertical and horizontal love and forgiveness are inseparable. A guy by the name of General Oglethorpe said to John Wesley, I never forgive and I never forget. And Wesley said, well, then I hope you never sin. It's based upon that verse. You never forgive, really. I hope you never sin. We have a present obligation to be salt, creating a thirst, adding flavor, being before the unbelieving world as God was to us. Having patience, compassion, rather than sitting in our smug self-righteousness, pointing the finger at them. We should have compassion on unbelievers. We should submit to authorities because God was kind to us while we were unbelievers. I found a story I wanted to read last time. I didn't get to because of the time, and I'll close with it this time. It's an anonymous letter written about the second century. The second century to a letter to a guy named Diognetus. Now listen to the description of Christians from the second century A.D. Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men, nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities, wherever chance has put them. 
They follow local customs and clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens, as citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, they suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like anyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned, but they are put to death and they gain life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are short of everything and they have plenty of all things. They are dishonored and yet they gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened and yet they are cleared. They are mocked, yet they bless in return. They are treated outrageously and they behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if being given new life. They are attacked by Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by Greeks. Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. To put it simply, the soul is to the body as Christians are to the world. The soul is spread through all parts of the body and Christians through all cities of this world. The soul is in the body, but it is not of the body. Christians are in the world, but they are not of the world. What a great letter to another Greek person in the second century A.D. describing the lifestyle of Christians. So we have a present obligation to love, to be patient, to be peaceable, gentle, to be humble. Sounds tough, doesn't it? It's not only tough, it's impossible without a work of God, without a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. But because it's commanded, it is possible. Why should we do it? Because we were as bad as they were. Our previous condition and our past salvation, that God saved us not according to our deserving it nor our works. So, Father, we turn to you. And we think about the Christian witness in a world like ours. The Christian citizen. Citizens of the kingdoms of this world being responsible, yet we realize, Lord, that our real home is in heaven. We're going to walk those streets of glory one day forever and ever and ever. Until then, Father, I pray that we would both be heavenly-minded, but yet we would be earthly good. Help us to be responsible as citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that if there are those who have come tonight or are listening over the radio, who have not walked through the gates of your city into your kingdom, rather than just keep looking outside, looking in, that they would come in that door of faith tonight into a relationship with Jesus Christ.